welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the IOM3 Investigates podcast, which is the podcast of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. My name is Mark Glover, and I'm the commissioning editor of Materials World, which is the member magazine here at the Institute. So today's podcast is on a big topic, Brexit. We haven't had one yet, so so felt it time to, to record one. Of course, Brexit is affecting a myriad of variables in, in the country, but I suppose from the Institute's point of view and for the purposes of this podcast, we want to we wanted to be a bit more specific and hone it down into two areas, really, that affect our broad palette of members. And the first one is manufacturing as well, which is a, a big sector that our members work across. And secondly, research and development. Another big topic, Brexit's effect on, on innovation, if you like, and also that link between uh, academia and industry, which is something we try to push and cover in the pages here of the, the magazine. Um, so on these t- uh, two topics, I'm delighted to say I've got um, two experts on the areas who have kindly offered to spend their time with us to speak about some of these issues. On that area of academic collaboration and, and R&D, I'm, I'm excited to say I'm joined by Professor Richard Dashwood who's a Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at Coventry University, and he also heads up the University Alliance's Research and Innovation Area, and is, is also has a background in material science. He's a really good person to be speaking to us today. Richard, just check, how, how are you? Everything okay? Well, Your end? Good to see you. Very well. Yeah, yeah very well, Mark. Good to, good to be here. Thanks. Thanks again. And then uh, on the questions around manufacturing, also delighted and um, particularly as he's at the uh, Conservative uh, Party conference today in Manchester and has managed to find some time to, to speak to us, is uh, Ben Fletcher, uh, the Chief Operating Officer at uh, Make UK, the UK's Manufacturing Association. So, uh, Ben, how are you? Nice to see you and hear you. Thanks for joining it's us. It's great to see you too, Mark. Many thanks for the invitation. And I can assure you, time on, on this is a great respite from the joys of time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, ben, we'll go straight into it. If So the first question, I suppose, is, is you know, let's let's start on a bit of a, a broad one. Putting aside the impact of COVID-19, if we can, but in terms of some of the main, fact, uh, the main challenges that manufacturers uh, are facing at the moment since we left the EU, a, a, a big question, I know, so apologies, but are you able to sort of summarise where we are and, and what, what your members are, are sort of saying to you? Absolutely. And I think with, with many things, this has been a bit of a journey. Um, and the story has evolved over time. Uh, I think, you know, we've forgotten because it's been such a, a consequential year, um, just how sort of speedily things changed. You know, the, the deal was done with the EU late in the afternoon on Christmas Eve. Many firms had already shut down for, for, for a break at that point. Uh, and when they reopened seven days later, we had a brand new trade deal and, and the world for many of them had changed enormously. Uh, and literally they shut the doors in, in one trading environment, reopened them in another. And I think the immediate impact that was felt in the first few weeks of the year was just understanding just how much things had changed, uh, the complexity of the paperwork that needed to be filled in for customs declarations, huge problems with issues like rules of origin and and people just uh, having to deal with that. Many firms uh, had only been in existence 
because of the average life cycle of a business. Many firms had only been in existence um, after the creation of the single market. And many firms, um, even if they exported, only exported to the EU. So it was, uh, I think, for a large number of, of SME businesses in particular, a rude awakening on the 1st of January to deal with such a, a changed environment. And because of COVID, many of them hadn't had the time or the, or the bandwidth to do much preparation. So I think we started the year uh, in just a state of, 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 of surprise, uh, a, a bureaucratic process that people weren't familiar with that they had to go through to get their goods out of the country. Uh, I think over time, people have got better at handling that. Uh, familiarity, training, understanding the system, working with logistics partners and so on. Uh, and I think that some of the bigger issues have, have emerged. Some people whose business model requires movement of a product in and out of the EU, that's much, much harder now under the, the trade deal. So some people are now beginning to understand their business model may not work if you're a logistics hub, if you brought things together from different EU countries in the UK and then re-exported them. Uh, that's really, really challenging. Lots of firms now are beginning to experience issues with rules of origin, uh, mm -hmm. and the cumulative um, makeup of the products and how much of that is, uh, is, is British made and how you prove that as well. Many firms didn't have deals with their suppliers around the rules of origin content. So actually, even if they were 100% confident that uh, they met the rules of origin requirement, it was very difficult to, to show that because they didn't have the documentary evidence. I think we've seen a real challenge uh, around skills. That's very topical at the moment. Mm. But the UK manufacturing industry already had an acute skills shortage prior to our departure from the mm. EU. About a third of all vacancies took three or four months to fill real challenge around um, technical skilled labor uh, and a huge number of people who, who did go home uh, either at the end of the, the um, transition period or have gone home as a result of COVID. And, and the skill shortage is very topical mm. and HTV drivers, but we're finding that's an issue across the sector uh, generally. Uh, and mm. I think many firms have really experienced big problems in accessing raw materials and parts. And some of that's about global shipping delays, some of that's about inconsistencies in the way that goods are treated at customs ports. Uh, and some of it is for, for reasons that firms don't want to do business with the UK at the moment. So mm. it's been a, an evolving journey. People are very adaptable. British manufacturers are fantastic at learning and adapting. But it's certainly been one of those situations where every time you get to the top of the hill and think you might be through it, you suddenly find there's another range of mountains on the other side and you've mm. got those. Yeah, sure, absolutely. You touched on something there, Ben, about um, you know dealing with logistics, paperwork, procedures. That was something that that seems seems to be a bit of an issue. How how are people dealing with that now? Sort of a, a little bit further down down the road. I think we've we've got to a point where I think almost a hundred percent of our members that we surveyed said that they had some problems, uh, and we're now getting to a point where you know about a third of them are still struggling. So I think two thirds. Right of the people who had a problem uh, have now got used to it. Some of those problems will be exacerbated because of kind of current challenges around logistics and, and freight and so on. But I think what we're spotting is really kind of three very distinct groups. And a lot of it is to do with size of firm, but it's not all about size of firm. If you exported to a, a number of markets, both inside the EU and outside the EU, what you've had to do is to bring your export paperwork or, or in some cases uh, work around imports um, into line across all of your markets now. And, and if you had a team that, that dealt with paperwork for countries further afield than the EU, then you had the ability within your firm to understand how to do that and, and you could bring 
to bear that experience of, of trading globally on your EU exports. If you're a firm that didn't have that experience but, but had the wherewithal, you could work with a freight forwarder, you could work with the logistics partner, you could get your staff trained in customs paperwork and, and so on, and, and you could overcome it that way. I think what we're tending to find is that there are smaller firms, firms in some sectors that have been really very badly hit over the last 18 months by the pandemic, haven't got a lot of spare cash, haven't got a lot of experience outside of EU uh, exports, who are either struggling to find the partner because there's very few of these companies around and, and demand is incredibly high, and they haven't got a lot of cash to go off and train their staff. And, and those are often the firms who are struggling. As I said earlier, in some cases, it's it's not even about familiarity with the process. It's about your supply chain and the data that you collect, giving you the ability to complete those forms to the standard that's required. Mm -hmm. And so that's a bigger issue that's more systemic in supply chains, and it's going to take a little bit of time to crack. Sure, sure. Um, uh, a lot of the things that we're hearing about in our news pages, speaking to members, there, there has been disruption to, to raw material supplies across the board, actually. So metals, plastics, composites. Specifically in that, there are you know things that are starting to come in in terms of uh, counterfeit components as well. And just to hone it down a bit, uh, Ben, if you can, um, are you seeing this at all? Is this something you're aware of? And Very much so how is it dealing with? It's it's a huge problem, and and I think that there are again several factors behind it. Um, I think that mm. you know things like the global shipping problems that that have that have really been visible for a long time now. That the entire system was knocked out of kilter at the start of the COVID pandemic and lockdowns in, in China and so on. It's never really recovered. There was the additional problems of the Suez Canal being blocked for a few days. Uh, and, and essentially, uh, an incredibly finely tuned system has been disrupted and it's it's still recovering. I think in the UK, uh, some of the issues have been that, that because boats aren't arriving at, at uh, scheduled times, there's often been huge delays at ports where lots of vessels arrived at similar times or vessels that haven't come to the UK that have offloaded in Europe and then have had to move the goods by land from Europe into the UK. So there's been a, a crisis in, in logistics. That's a global crisis and, and, and that's had an impact. I think we've seen as a result of global lockdowns, a change in consumer behavior uh, and an incredible demand for consumer goods, consumer electronics, and a lot of um, those markets have absorbed uh, a lot of the product that used to come here. One of the most critical and visible things um, is the uh, semiconductor. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's having an enormous impact, in particular in the UK, on our car industry. Um, mm -hmm. Our production is down uh, very dramatically at the moment. Uh, and a very, very significant factor in that has been the shortage of, of semiconductors to go in car um, electronic management systems. Um, we're also picking up uh, as a result of that, some very uh, different shortages uh, from microchips. We're also experiencing a huge shortage of cardboard. Uh, and a lot of that is because, um, again, the consumer goods demand, the home shopping demand, uh, lots of people are, are bulk buying that and manufacturers who need cardboard to ship products often in very specialized and, and um, bespoke uh, uh, formats are finding it almost impossible to access cardboard. We actually know from our uh, business association contacts that some very large fast food chains are actually having to go back to using things like single-use plastics because it's mm. even for a firm with the buying power of a, of a, of a global um, fast food giant um, they can't access cardboard at the moment so you've got everything from 
the high tech to the, the very basic product of, of packaging. And everyone is experiencing some significant delays. We've, we've heard about shortages of nylon. We've heard about shortages of, of plastics and many, many issues of chemicals. There is only so much that you can do. And I think your issue of counterfeit is a real, real challenge here, because I think as firms are going out and trying to explore alternative sources, um, unfortunately, if it is impossible to get the good into the country, if it's impossible, if your good is stuck in Hong Kong somewhere, um, no one else can get it to you any faster. And I think some people have been burnt by looking at alternative suppliers and, and have found that there's a there's a real problem with quality and a real problem with counterfeiting. And we're working very hard with our members to try and encourage them. We're particularly working hard with government to do things like support the ports, get the throughput of ports uh, as quickly uh, as possible uh, resolved. Um, but there are some fundamental problems here that are not going to be fixed quickly. That's really interesting. I appreciate you giving us uh, an overview of that there. Because we, we know it's sort of, going on it's really interesting to get a, a broad scope view on it and, and plenty more probably could probably be a podcast on its own actually how this is gonna gonna play out but um just changing tack slightly Ben again something uh you, you've touched on was with SMEs you know smaller companies compared to the larger companies going through the Brexit transition I'm sure there is something in place but how, how are you sort of keeping an eye out for the smaller guys if you like as, as, as they struggle with cash and paperwork and, and legislation what are you doing for these people? I think it's an incredibly tough time uh, for, for small businesses. They're the, they're the core of our membership in number, um, and we're working very, very hard with them. Our lobbying of government is particularly focused uh, really on financial support to, to SMEs at, at the moment uh, for, for a number of them. Um, they're finding it hard to access some of the, the Brexit funds for, for SMEs. We're trying to get government to be a bit more flexible in the, in the rules around that. Uh, I think we uh, are very pleased that I think the government listened and responded through COVID around some of those short-term measures to, to business. What we need to make sure is that those things are uh, are not cut off too quickly and that businesses are, are given some time to fight through an incredibly challenging period. What we're also doing a lot of through our member networks is bringing SME members together so that often the very best source of advice is someone who's worked out how to do it. And, and then what mm. we find the way of propagating that message uh, and getting the local networks active so that once people have, have found the solution to the problem, and sometimes the problems are national, sometimes they're, they're very local, uh, and getting people to work together on, on this has been a, a really important thing. Our, our regional advisory meetings around the country have never been better attended than they are now, and, and, uh, and the pandemic, I think, has shown people the value uh, of sharing information, of working collaboratively, um, and and we've been a great uh, conduit for that, and, and we're continuing to do everything we can. But I think the big message to government is, particularly in, in, in the current climate, where there's a certain sense that business has a bottomless pocket and that business is, is going to be able to sort everything out by paying more. Uh, I think a lot of SMEs are, are very much on the edge at the moment. And our message to government is um, yeah, it's very, very important that these businesses are supported, that the support schemes for, for business are more flexible, uh, and that at the end of an incredibly challenging two years, um, the rug isn't pulled out from them too quickly. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, sort of brings me on to the to the next question. Actually, yeah, I imagine you've you covered it. What, what what more would you like to see from from government going forward? Is it around the sort of SME protection? Do you think, and, and or other areas as well? Yes, I think I, I think we've had an incredibly challenging period of time. We've We've had two big global events in terms of COVID, 
uh, and in terms of of the withdrawal uh, from the biggest trading block in in the world mm. happening uh, in parallel uh, and i think a huge amount of of effort and energy has been put in by our fantastic smes to to deal with that many of them have dealt with it successfully but in some sectors the aviation sector is a great example of this demand remains incredibly low and if you're a firm in the aviation supply chain your order books are empty the furlough scheme is coming to an end um, you've got to start paying lots of rents and rates and, and so on that you haven't had to pay for a long time. And it's incre increasingly hard to access additional government support. So I would say, you know, our message to government, we're here at, at the, um, the Conservative Party conference, we're talking mm. all week. Our message is really the SMEs are, are about to hit an incredibly challenging period. There are sources of cash available. Lots of money has been sent out to local authorities. SMEs are struggling sometimes to access that. There are SME support funds for exporters and people finding the rules and the criteria around some of that very difficult. This money is, is not a luxury for SMEs. This money is increasingly the thing that's going to keep them going. And if we want our sector, the muscle of the, of the great manufacturing sector, 12% of the UK, economy almost three million people working in it if we want that muscle to be still there at the next stage of recovery if we want that muscle to drive green growth over the next decade um, we can't lose those jobs we can't lose those firms we can't lose those people uh, and i think that's the absolute clarity of our message support the sme sector um, make sure it's easier to access the cash that's already been made available uh, and let's think a little bit more about what more can be done to keep these firms going Absolutely, yes. Well, well said. I, I entirely agree. Just final question now, Ben. And if you are in a position to um, pan forward in the next twelve months, how, if you can, who knows what's going? Who knows what's going to happen in um, compared to what's been happening the last couple of years? But where, how do you think it's going to pan out? Well, I'm, I'm a Leicester City supporter. We we won the <laughs> five thousand to one, so you know anything can happen, and, and we should be optimistic uh, whenever possible. Equally, I, I think that. There is this kind of sense slightly that, that we'll get to the end of this year. And I think lots of people made this mistake 12 months ago um, and that everything's going to be fine on the 1st of January and, and it's all going to be again. We'll be out the other side of COVID. We, we will have had a year of being used to being outside of the single market. And I still think next year is, is going to be very challenging. I think for the reasons I mentioned, you know, some industries are going to continue to struggle with an ongoing um, lack of, of, of demand. Some industries, and we've talked about the automotive sector and the shortage of, of um, semiconductors, those things are not going to be resolved quickly. So I think next year is still a very, very tough year. Uh, I think firms will get um, uh, increasingly more confident in the way that they export. I think firms will get increasingly used to um, overcoming the, the barriers to trade, but those barriers are, are significant. We are picking up across many um, member companies, both large and small, the opportunities that are starting to arise in new markets outside of the EU. Um, and I think there will probably be some development into those markets next year. But I think the challenge is that it takes a long time to win business um, overseas. It takes a lot of money and investment to create big trade opportunities overseas. So I think next year will be a tough year. I think there may be some green shoots of new markets emerging, new opportunities emerging. And I think manufacturers are always great at accessing those and enthusiastic about them. But I think next year is still going to be quite a tough year. Um, and I think that although um, we've got a lot of confidence uh, in the sector at the moment, um, I think that, uh, that there are still some big challenges to come. And the real difference next year 
will be that things like the furlough scheme, things like the government support that got us through COVID, they won't be there anymore. And the country has got to start thinking about how it repays that money. Um, and we have to we have to keep the sector alive and fighting really critically so that we can be in that position to, to support things like um, the, the Green Revolution and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. We can't lose British manufacturing. It's got to get through this so that it can be a huge part of the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thanks, Ben. And um, you know, it's really useful insight to, to have your ex expertise on this. Appreciate, Ben, really appreciate your time. This would be good to, to keep in touch and also perhaps you to maybe come back in a, a year's time or so and to update our members on, on where we are. So again, th thanks, Ben. Pre appreciate your input there. Really good stuff. Delighted. Right, that was uh, Ben Fletcher, the Chief Operating Officer at Make UK, the UK Manufacturers Association. It's really, as I said, really good insight from Ben Ben there with, with lots of topics and plenty more for discussion as well, I think. So let's turn our attention now to R&D, innovation, the link between universities and industry. As I say, we try to write about, we, we in our, our readership, our membership, we have a lot of people from academia working with spin-out companies, which is a really exciting part of what, of what the sectors, sectors are doing. But yeah, of course, Brexit has, has, has made an impact here as well in terms of funding, freedom of movement, um, collaboration with international universities. As I say, we've got uh, Professor Richard Dashwood here at uh, Coventry University, and also perhaps with his hat on as he's, he oversees, uh, he works with at the University Alliance, which represents a number of technical and professional universities who do actually have that link with, with different industries and dif different sectors. So Richard, if, 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 I could, if I can begin and just go, go straight in, into it, if, if, if I may. I was looking back on some statistics for this, this podcast, positive statistics from the Alliance Universities. In 2018-19, um, the universities, the Alliance Universities received 100 million worth of research grants and contracts from research funding councils, governments, charities and commercial businesses. If you can, I mean, it's obvious it is important, but sometimes it's good to hone in on a, a bit more. How really important is this for society, if you like, and this funding and the opportunity that it gives you got a case study at all that, that you could perhaps cite or uh, a success story? I, th I think the first thing to, to bear in mind is that 100 million may sound like a lot of money, but but mm. compared to the national spend on 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 R and D in this country, it's about they represent you know less than one percent. Sure, uh, sure. But I think what what's impressive is is how we leverage that funding to make a, a, a big influence on on people's lives, and I think you know. When we talk about the, the, the R&D landscape in the UK, people's thoughts immediately go to, to, towards the research intensive universities, the Russell Group. Uh, and, and, and of course, they do get the lion's share of, of the funding that's, uh, that's available. Uh, but, but I think what's unique about university alliance universities, the more modern universities, is that, that unlike the research intensive, we're not research intensive. You know, we are more focused in what we do. Not mm. every member of staff is expected to have a an internationally leading research career. And so what we tend to be able to do is to, to have much more focused research that can be more transdisciplinary in nature and very much more challenge-led uh, with the sort of co-creation uh, of research with the end users of that research. So we're very much closer to the end users, uh, but it doesn't detract away from the research excellence piece. So we, we're very much, you know, there is that, that thing that research has to be internationally leading, mm -hmm. but applied 
Uh, and we talk about challenges. I mean, the challenges that the University Alliance look at uh, are things like health and well-being, massive big issue, uh, particularly at the moment. Things like clean growth, sustainability, peace and security, things that affect us all of the time. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I could, I could, there are many, many examples I could sure. use. But uh, if we look at clean growth, for example, I'm trying to put this into the context of your membership. University of South Wales works with Tata Steel looking at ways in which they can uh, reduce energy use within within their plants. Something that's very important in the yeah. foundation in industries where Absolutely, yeah. en energy is, is a big, big uh, issue. Things like Teesside University working on a net zero innovation centre where they're working with local industrial partners to, to, to build up a sort of low carbon economy in, the, in that region. To me, it is about, it's about that global challenges, but making sure we have local impact. So we, mm. we, we, we worry about building strategic partnerships, both locally, nationally and internationally, bringing that research excellence to bear on those challenges, which then impact locally. Uh, I mean, in terms of my own university, Compton University, we, we're sat in what was, you know, the motor city of, of mm. the UK. Uh, and we have a big activity around uh, low carbon mobility. Uh, so that you know, battery vehicles, hydrogen, energy, et cetera, et cetera. And we have lots of links with industry where we either embed industry into our campus or we embed ourselves onto uh, the, the, the campuses of, of, of the manufacturing uh, bases. So, for example, we work with Unipart Manufacturing uh, and we actually have a building on their uh, site where both our undergraduate students and researchers go and work and collaborate on the shop floor and we call you know we, we we call it the faculty on the on the shop floor so it's very much a different approach to uh, uh, research and education we work with a big german uh, consultancy company that work on low carbon propulsion fev they they have their base on our campus and we have a brand new purpose-built building where we do uh, low carbon transportation research both together but also independently so we, we're at elbow with, with industry experts, allowing a much faster transfer of knowledge between uh, industry uh, and university and, 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 and uh, vice versa. So to me, these are all really exciting things that yep. I think the freedom of not being a research intensive allows you to do, about that focus, transdisciplinary, challenge-led, working with, with uh, the, the end users of, of your research. Sure, sure. Thanks. Really good. Really exciting stuff going on there. In fact, University of Teesside, we have, I think we've got a, a feature coming out next issue, which is around some of the research there's, there's doing by the time this is published. And I'll, I'll share that with you as well, Richard. It does it look very interesting what they're doing there. Turning it perhaps to Brexit now and this, this post-Brexit new world, if you like, of turning back to the to the funding. What challenges are you seeing in terms of funding and what role can the Alliance play in supporting the, uh, the, the universities here? Well, it, 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 it's, it's interesting. I mean, if, if you look <laughs> at, at, at research funding, uh, the government tell you it's spending more than ever on, mm. on R&D, uh, which, of course, is true. Uh, there is a bit of smoke and mirrors in that, in the fact that uh, prior to Brexit, we got over a billion pounds worth of R&D from Europe. Whilst we're still associated or plan to be associated with the European R&D funding, our contribution now is paid for directly from the UK government. So uh, it's, it, there's, there, as I say, there's a bit of, bit of robbing Peter to pay Paul. But overall, you know, we, we, we're still very well funded in this, this country. We could always have more. Uh, the government has a target of, of 
a percent of GDP on, on research. There's about at the moment there's about a 0.7% gap. Uh, and I think anyone that's that's that that's sensible would realize that that gap is not going to be met directly by government, but by through leveraging uh, industry. So, you know, for, for organizations like the University Alliance, which are very close uh, to industry around that knowledge transfer and uh, uh, yeah. co-creation of research, that's a good thing. If, we, if we're given the, the tools, collaborative R&D funding from the government to actually uh, uh, get, get our hands on that funding. So it's a mixed picture. I mean, I, I, Horizon Europe and, and their predecessors, all those framework programs, uh, going back for many years now, mm. they, 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 they have their flaws. But when you think about it, it's the only place in the world where you can do uh, multi, you know, multinational collaborative research and development. And, and when we're in this world that we're in at the moment, where we do have these big global challenges, that's the sort of thing we need to be doing. So Horizon Europe is a good thing. Uh, we're still not associated, so you know yeah. it could all go wrong. Yeah, uh, if space. we keep on if we keep on upsetting our friends on the continent, they could, you know, sort of take their toys and 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 run away. Of course, but of course, that, yeah, also they need us as much as we need them. I mean, we have some massive expertise in this country uh, from a, an R and D perspective, which benefits Europe, and 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 they benefit from from working with us as well. Of course, we know there is a commitment to cover the next period of funding. But what happens after Horizon Europe? Yeah. So where, where, where's the next uh, next money coming from? Mm. So I think that's something that, that, that is a concern. But you know, in the short term, things don't look too bad. Euro- European funding is very important to University Alliance. Uh, it, it does fund, as I said, that collaborative R&D, which is a big part of our, our research portfolio. Uh, I guess the other, the other issue that, that, that's come up over the last uh, uh, six months, of course, is around the ODA spend, so the Overseas Development uh, uh, yeah. spend. Uh, that was cut, as, as we all know, mm-hmm. but that had quite a serious knock-on because a significant, well, a significant chunk of that money was being spent in research through the Global Challenges Research Fund. And that has led, for the first time in my uh, uh, sort of existence in, in uh, higher education, grants being stopped, grants being pulled, funding being withdrawn. And, 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 you know, funding that had been won being taken away before it had even started. And, and I think that there was there were some mistakes made there. Mm. Uh, you know, leaving Brexit, we lost a lot of soft power that we had as a result of being part of Europe. And, and soft power is very important, as you know. Uh, and, and, and ODA, the ODA funding allowed us that soft power. And by doing the research with in, in countries, with the con- locally, the, the countries that, that, that needed that, 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 uh, uh, funding, we were developing and growing soft power. And in one fair swoop, we've basically upset a significant number of partners and countries as a result of just pulling that funding away with no uh, no safety net and, and no warning. Sure. So, you know, there's been a lot of damage done by that. And I mm-hmm. know that even within government, it wasn't a, a, a universally uh, accepted thing to do. I know it plays well in the public because charity starts at home and all that, but the, the, the world is bigger than just uh, the United Kingdom, and we need we need friends more than ever. So sure. I think that was that that was an issue. I guess the other things that worry me uh, certainly uh, the talk around uh, creative industries, arts and humanities funding for that. Now, I noticed today that they're announcing more funding for artificial intelligence. Well, that's that's mm. all well and good, uh, and 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 of course the the, the issue is that artificial intelligence. With, will potentially, uh, in the end, reduce the number of jobs available as we replace skilled jobs more and more with, with AI. 
And the last thing that we have as, as humanity is our creativity. I think it'll be the creativity over the last thing that will be replaced by machines. And yet we're now the, the sort of mood music coming out of government is, is cuts to, to, to the creativity in the creative industry, something actually that the UK is very strong at. So, uh, you know, we've got a government that, that is not supporting manufacturing as well as it could do. And now taking some of the other parts of the of, of our economy, like the creative industries, and, and uh, not supporting that as well. So, you know, there, there, there are some concerns. Sure. Sure. Thanks, Richard. That, that's really interesting to get that that insight at the the, the coal face, if you like, of uh, of, of, the, of the different challenges. As you say the um, horizon. See what's going to happen on the horizon. I think that that'll be interesting as that as that plays out. And um, sticking to the issue of, of of funding, I mean, it's already been for people trying to get funding through UKRI. You know, I know that it's. People I've spoken to attended a conference recently where it was where it was reported as well. But it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky going through the logistics, if you like, the paperwork. Who do you need? Even the website can be a bit a bit tricky. Is this improving, or are you still hearing sort of murmurs from from the universities that this is a, a still a, a tricky process? I mean, I think I think I think getting funding uh, as a, as a university academic now is is harder than it ever has been. Uh, yeah. It's you know the competition is is incredible. The quality of of the academics that we have in this country has got better and better and better as as time has gone on. I agree there is there is a lot of bureaucracy in the process, but actually compared to many countries, I think the the research councils in the UK do their best to reduce that bureaucracy. And I'm sure some some people will will argue with me, but but having looked at some some of the uh, other countries' ways of getting funding, quite challenging. You know, I remember when I started and, and uh, as, as an academic and a professor said to me, well, it's really, you know, I, I, I don't, don't uh, envy you guys. When, when, when I was a youngster, if you had a good idea, you wrote a, 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 an application and it, it got funded more and more times than it didn't. Uh, and now we're used to very low, low, low success rates. Uh, and now I look back and I look at the youngsters coming in. I think, God, I don't think I'd ever have joined this industry if I'd known what that if, if this is what it's going to be like. Because not only is it challenging and bureaucratic to get the funding, it's also challenging and bureaucratic to spend it. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and 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 that is something as well that that you know, it, it's so easy to get uh, demotivated now uh, by by some of these challenges. We're becoming a a very regulated industry. Uh, potentially overregulated in some respects, and that just creates this 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 bureaucratic uh, overhead. And I know the government are aware of it, and then look, there's a recent consultation looking at how how that bureaucracy can be cut. But uh, you know, it, it it is challenging. I, I'm not sure I would choose to be an academic uh, again if I if I was right. starting out. That's interesting. That's interesting. I appreciate your candidness on that. Really interesting. Last question, and then again, sort of crystal ball time. Two two angles here, I suppose. How how do you think this this is all going to play the next next twelve months for the landscape? And if there was one thing that could be implemented or changed, what would you like it to be? If you could click your fingers. Ooh, big question. It is. It is a big question, and and as you say, crystal ball. I mean, we. I mean, as, as, as a university and, and personally, you know, we we all want our old lives back. I mean, we want we want to be back to, to where we were pre-pandemic. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 so there was a sense of excitement, even with Brexit. You know, th- th- there was lots of, of exciting things going on 
And now we're in a position where we don't really know whether uh, the students that have enrolled in the last month are going to be able to see through the whole of the year with a, with a face-to-face uh, uh, teaching. Will our research centre stay open for the whole of the, uh, uh, this, this, this next year? Or will we have to go back into a period of lockdown and controlled access to laboratories? And, and will our people be able to finally get out and do field work? We've got many, mm. many researchers and staff where that their research laboratories are overseas. They're doing field work in Africa or, or Asia, uh, and they haven't been able to get out there. They haven't been able to go and do their field work. So lots of this research has been being delayed. So there's a lot of things that need to happen quite quickly to for us to get back to, 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 to normality uh, and, and travel being, being, being just one of them. Even just getting staff and students into the university because of travel restrictions has been uh, challenging. Yeah, so you might recruit somebody and then you know six, six to 12 months later, they might actually be able to uh, arrive in the country. Mm. So big challenges uh, are there. What would I change? What would I like to see, see happen over the next 12 months? I think, yeah, you know, I've always been a big proponent of, of, of more collaborative research and development. You know, I, I, I know that the, the fundamental research and the investigator-led research is really important uh, and needs to continue, but, but a bigger balance of funding towards collaborative research and development, being able to leverage more funding uh, from the end users of, of the research. Uh, so I'd like I'd like to I'd like to see, see see that I think that would be my my biggest wish, and maybe return to the pre-pandemic levels of funding for the Global Challenges Research Fund sure. as well. I put that on my wish list. Sure, I'll, well, yeah, add it to the wish list. Um, <laughs> and again, Richie, you know, it'd be good to keep in touch on this podcast. Perhaps in a year's time, we can check in again to see see how things are, are playing out. Right, that sort of brings us to to the end now. Richard, thanks. Thanks so much for that. It's been, um, you know, as I say, I appreciate you're in a good position there. Appreciate, you know, being candid about some of the issues you're facing and some of the some of the challenges which is is being played out across that landscape. So, so uh, yeah, thank, thanks, thanks, Richard, and and um, I appreciate you, you coming on. So, so that brings us to the end. So, I'd like just before we go, just to say thanks to my guests. So, firstly, Ben Fletcher at CEO at Make. UK Ben, you can um, cold spring. You can go now. You, you you're free to go to the to, to the conference. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm quite keen to stay here for another twenty minutes. Quite yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Thank you very much though. Thanks thanks for the time and and it's been an excellent chat. We, we'd love to come if if it's ever ever useful. Thanks Ben, we we appreciate it. Yeah, we'll we'll keep in touch to get your insight again as as we move forward. Thanks and uh, finally thanks to. Uh, Richard as well at University Alliance and Coventry University. Richard, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on and giving us that insight. No, thanks, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. And finally, a goodbye um, to all of the audience. Thank you for um, for listening. It's It's been good to have you on here. Just a little bit of uh, final notes. Our archive of, of podcasts is on the IOM3 website, ranging from all sorts of, of topics. So point your browser in that direction and, and there's a, a fair few podcasts there to, to download and, and stream. So yes, thank you very much um, for listening and uh, we'll see you again next time. Take care. information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter 
and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.